Welcome to the Judgment Call Podcast, a podcast where I bring together some of the most curious minds on the planet. Risk takers, adventurers, travelers, investors, entrepreneurs, and simply mind boggles. To find all episodes of this show, simply go to Spotify, iTunes, or YouTube, or go to our website, judgmentcallpodcast.com. If you like this show, please consider leaving a review on iTunes or subscribe to us on YouTube. This episode of the Judgment Call Podcast is sponsored by Mighty Travels Premium. Full disclosure, this is my business. What we do at Mighty Travels Premium is to find the airfare deals that you really want. Thousands of subscribers have saved up to 95% in the airfare. Those include $150 round-trip tickets to Hawaii for many cities in the US, or $600 life led tickets in business class from the US to Asia, or $100 business class life led tickets from Africa round trip all the way to Asia. In case you didn't know, about half the world is open for business again and accepts travelers. Most of those countries are in South America, Africa and Eastern Europe. To try out Mighty Travels Premium, go to mightytravels.com slash mtp or if that's too many letters for you, simply go to mtp, the number four and the letter U com to sign up for your 30-day free trial. Um, I was obviously curious, you know, I've, I've heard about you before. I saw your articles and I know you write for Bloomberg, CNN, a bunch of high-profile um, travel sites. And not just, I mean, they're not just travel sites, they're general interest sites, but do you write for the travel section from what I've seen? Um, uh, help me understand, how did you get into travel journalism and travel research? I think this is where you are at now, right? Yeah, so I'm a I'm a travel industry analyst, and I'm not a journalist. So okay. you may have seen some reports that I've written either previously when I was at Forrester Research or some of the reports you've written at Atmosphere. Um, and I do get interviewed a lot by journalists at Bloomberg, the New York Times, CNN, uh, other publications, other outlets. Um, I am an accidental analyst. I will tell you that I worked started working. Uh, in advertising on the American Airlines advertising account and then went to work at TWA uh, uh, and, and some other airlines. I moved out to San Francisco where I live now uh, to run marketing for the Fairmont Hotel uh, chain and um, uh, then uh, worked at a brand agency and an online travel company. In 2000, I went to work for Forrester as an analyst um, uh, to help them understand uh, what technology was going to do in the travel industry uh, and to help travel companies understand what technology was going to do. And I've just stayed an analyst for, for now more than 20 years. There isn't a lot of people who have um, the stamina and the staying power in, in the consulting and analyst business. Um, I always feel like at least that's, that's true for consulting. There might be slightly different for analysts. It is uh, something where you, you grind through a lot of data, you, you come up with a lot of research reports, and then after like 10 years, if you're not partner, if you haven't made it that far, you, you kind of look for, for something else, like the grass is always green on, on, on the other side. Uh, it seemed like you, you always had a strong connection to the travel industry. You liked it, even if you started in there accidentally. Yeah, no, no, no. I Look, I was one of those little boys who built model airplanes and collected the airline timetables. Oh, and, I you see. Know, you know, most most kids my age were reading Sports Illustrated. I was reading Aviation Week and Flying Magazine. I learned how to fly an airplane before I could drive a car. So I'm lucky. I've I've been able to turn my hobby, my avocation, into a series of different jobs, all related around an industry I'm very passionate about. Uh, and it's an industry that has evolved enormously. Uh, and and just look at the changes that we've seen travel companies do during the COVID pandemic, uh, how they've had to adjust what they're doing, whether they're an airline or a cruise line or a hotel company or a travel agency or anything else. So it's just been, I consider myself extremely fortunate. I've been uh, able to have a seat at this table. Um, and it's it's interesting to see what the problems are and how to figure out how to solve them. That's very positive, I think. The travel industry, there is, there is something special about it. And that also is true for myself. That's how I looked at it um, from afar in the beginning. 
of my career. And then um, I started two, three different travel companies by now. So from an entrepreneurial perspective, I never um, worked um, for a travel company, for a major travel company. But some of these startups became somewhat major um, and had an impact on the industry, I hope, um, some of a long-term impact. And uh, what do you think makes the travel industry um, such a magnet, so to speak? I mean, obviously, we have uh, tons of flight attendants right, who kind of have accept a really low pay. Um, that's all pre-COVID. Um, but they accept a very low pay to see the world, um, to uh, kind of get out there and, and, and get this sense of curiosity uh, taken care of that they have. Um, and I feel that it's, there's a lot of people in the industry um, certainly have more more of a curry, maybe a curious gene. But when I worked in the airline industry, I, I, I was expecting the same thing, right? I was expecting airline executives, people who work in the airline industry, when I tried to sell them software, they had no curiosity at all. Um, they were like the, the, the automotive um, manufacturers. So there, there seems to be um, a, a strong magnet on, say, the consumer side of, of the travel industry. But once you're in it, it seems like the curiosity um, is going for for bad turn. It seems to go away. That's at least my experience seeing that industry from the inside. Uh, you know, I think a lot depends on the role that you're in uh, uh, and and the times that you're in the business. And and I've been in this business long enough to have gone through several booms and busts. You know, through nine eleven, through the Great Recession of two thousand eight, two thousand ten, and now the COVID pandemic. And we're still obviously not out of that. But you know you're you're right. I mean, there are certain jobs in the travel industry that attract certain people, and um, I've always just been curious about our world. I, I hope to be able to visit every country before I die. Uh, uh, you know, I've got a long, long, long way to go. But um, uh, you know, the the travel industry is also a fascinating business if you think about what it has done. It created dynamic pricing and revenue management. It took loyalty programs to a new level of consumer engagement. Uh, it's an industry that has gone from being very brand focused to very retail focused. It's one of the largest segments on the uh, sectors, excuse me, in terms of consumer e-commerce. Uh, it had been the largest, but with COVID, I'm not sure now if we've seen some, uh, uh, general retail uh, uh, grow beyond travel, but you know we uh, uh, in terms of what travel is and the parts of it: airlines, hotels, cruise lines, travel agencies, rental car companies, and others. It's just vast. And Torsten, what's so amazing is some of the companies that are having huge impact didn't exist a few years ago. You know, Facebook is a major advertising platform. Uber and, and Airbnb and companies like those have disrupted ground transportation and lodging. So, uh, you know, it's always evolving. And, and that makes it fun for me. It probably doesn't make it fun for some people, but I like it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love your, I love your enthusiasm. Um, and I, I see it the same way. One, one thing that I always felt with travel, and maybe that's too too far from from everyday's needs that people see. But I always felt travel is an is an extremely great tool, not just for your own curiosity to to satisfy that, but also to this exploration that that we have, that all of us have at a certain point of our lives, some more than others. It also is a great tool for kind of making world peace happen. Um, you know, not necessarily in this kumbaya um, element, but. Um, I feel like if if I've been to 130 countries and I, I've had people on who've been to all of them, right? But it's very difficult to be, it's very easy to be partisan if you live in a small town and nothing against small towns. I, I love small towns. But I'm saying as more you see other places um, and as more you see other countries, at some point you develop a level of, of there is so many different solutions to this problem um you you cannot be partisan anymore yes there's exceptions and i think um if you look at communism and i grew up with communism so i have a special uh, special antipathy with communism so to speak so there is certain things in the world where you where you feel like wow this isn't right but on the other hand it makes you for 99 percent of the cases in my personal case but i think this is true for for others too if you've been to so many different places, you spend some time there, you live there, you know there's other people on the other side of that wall, of the fence, or whatever ideological place other people are in. 
and they're just people and they, they want kind of the same thing you want. And I feel like if you take travel seriously and spend enough time in it, you're going to come out on the side of world peace. There's almost no other answer. I agree. Look, I, 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 I'm fond of saying anytime you leave your own neighborhood, you're traveling somewhere. So whether it's across town uh, to a different neighborhood in the same city where you live to a town a few kilometers or miles away, uh, to another state, to another country, to another continent, you have the opportunity to, to learn, to discover, to experience. And, you know, obviously there are a lot of factors that go into, into it when we take a trip. Um, if we are on a business trip and it's very busy and, you know, our schedule is packed and maybe it's a day trip where you're flying, let's say from San Francisco, where you and I both live down to Los Angeles or up to Seattle, where it's a day trip, you know, you're not exactly going to have a lot of time to uh, explore, but you can still be open to those moments, those serendipitous moments. Maybe it's just an, a nice conversation with someone at a coffee shop. Maybe it is seeing something, a different view that perhaps you noticed before. But you are so right when you talk about when we do travel, especially internationally, and especially if we have time to spend in a city or in a country, um, and if we are open to learning uh, and and understanding what it is, and you're right, there's you know a, we are all as people a lot more alike than we are different. We all have a lot more of the same shared goals. It helps when you are somewhere to understand what are the hardships uh, that a a community or, or a country and its people face? What are the advantages that they enjoy, et cetera? Um, and that's what I try to do when I'm traveling uh, is to be open, to be open to learning, to be open to active, I call it active watching and active listening. You know, just being an observer of where you are and when you have the chance, participate. I mean, you know, um, getting in conversations with people, having you know, enjoying and, and experiencing things on the real level, not the manufactured, you know, we've got 17 places to see on a tour bus and and three and a half days to see them in. That's not traveling. That's that's the equivalent of of uh, processed food. I mean, it's processed travel. It's not organic, um, and that's not as much. <clears throat> I like that you say that, and uh, those are wise words. Um, I think we fully agree on you. You and that is pre-COVID, and I think it already has changed to the better. But there's been so many places in the world that that had been great. Thailand is is the best example, but it also applies to many places. Say in Indonesia, it applies even to places in Africa that seem to give you this this opportunity to to be part of somewhere else, but still. Don't miss home too much, right? So you you live in a place where you can be productive, but you can also talk to and you you're involved in a different culture, but in a way that you that you can still do your work, say on your laptop, and you can you can you don't miss the amenities of home too much. There's lots of those places. What I think it happened to is this this dark side of tourism, right? Um, and it's 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 not the dark tourism where we go to Chernobyl. Um, I thought that was actually interesting. Um, I think that's a misnomer. The dark side for me is going to to seeing these places become uh, seedy, dirty. Um, there's a wrong kind of tourist there. Someone who is not open. Someone who is literally just on a hunt for the next package tour. Someone who is seemingly only interested in the in the lowest economy fare. And all of these things on its own are not, not a bad thing, right? I do this too. But I feel like the spirit of curiosity, the spirit of travel was, was broken in these instances. And we saw it as in Thailand, the, the wars for, I don't know, 40 million, 45 million um, tourist arrivals on a population of less than that. And um, I don't know, is there, do you think there is a real fix to this? Um, is there is there, this is an education issue? Um, how can we scale tourism, so to speak, or travel, um, irrespective of what world we use, what we use, and say it comes back after the COVID? How do you think we can scale it to five, six, seven, ten times of what it was before COVID, and still not de develop all these these tourist ghettos, so to speak? No, I, you raise a very important point, and I believe it was Skift that coined the phrase over tourism, uh, and it's a very, very valid point. 
uh, I remember several years ago, I took my eldest nephew on a uh, graduation uh, trip uh, as a, pre a trip, excuse me, as a graduation present. Uh, we went to Paris and it was his first time there. And we went down to Versailles. And Versailles was just overrun with tourists that day. And it was summertime, it was July, it was right around uh, uh, July 14th. So of course it was going to be busy. But what, what shocked us is we walked into the Hall of Mirrors and all we could see were people. You could not see the room. And yeah. so when you talk about dark tourism or the downside of tourism, you know, irresponsible travel, you know, it's, it's, I don't begrudge anyone who is able to find a great deal and takes a trip because, you know, one of the great things about travel is it's become far more affordable and far more accessible to a lot of people. And going back to what we talked about, the more of us who travel, the more of us who understand our world, the less we have to be fearful of. But we have to be responsible when we travel. What I'm going to be very curious about to, to get at your question, how does the industry support growth without killing off the world we're going to see? In the post-COVID world, having, you know, for a lot of people, obviously not everybody, but a lot of people were able to do work from home, um, uh, which really means work from anywhere. When their offices reopen, Will they go to their bosses and say, you know, I like being in the office, but I also like the flexibility of being somewhere else. Can I, may I go off to this place, whatever it is, maybe it's a lake 50 miles away. Maybe it's a ski place uh, 200 miles away. Maybe it's Thailand, you know, but go there for, for two weeks, for four weeks, for whatever it is. You know, I know I have my commitments. I know I have this project due or this responsibility or whatever else. I'll hold up my end of the bargain. Will you let me do that? I think we're going to see a lot of those kinds of conversations take place. And when they do, I think what happens is travel perhaps gets spread out a little more evenly across the calendar. We don't have the same degree of summer peaks or, or holiday season peaks that we did. And at the same time, maybe we don't have the deep valleys in the off season that we once did either. So, you know, I don't know. I do know there's a lot of pent up demand for people to travel. I'm calling it revenge travel, revenge tourism. We've been kept at home for so long. We're eager to get back out to see the world. It's one of the top things we wanna do uh, aside from seeing family, we haven't been able to see. But I think once things stabilize, um, you know, it'll be very interesting to see what happens. I think business travel won't be as strong as it once was, but there will be business people traveling on their own uh, uh, budget, on their own money, to go to some of these places where they'll work for two, four, six, eight weeks, whatever, at a time and with their families. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think it's going to be a very different world. Yeah, I've been doing this for the last 10 years, really taking my family around the globe and uh, we work from different places. And um, I'm trying to, you know, plan at least enough time that I can see um, enough about the country or the place that I can learn enough from it. Sometimes picking up a few words in a new language, sometimes even going to a language school. So um, there's now a word for a digital nomad, which has a bad ring to it for most people because it kind of implies that you you basically just you, you take your bad behavior to a new place um without learning anything which i think um so I'm, I'm i'm still not sure what i'm what i'm making of this term one thing that i noticed and i've never been i've been to costa rica um last week and i realized Costa Rica had had an amazing hand in pulling the sustainable tourism up. And I always felt of this, man, this is just a marketing slogan, right? Everyone wants to be sustainable. And but what Costa Rica has done, and the whole country seems to be that way, like there, there isn't even one big road in the whole country. It's all spread out. There's villages, and you think of it, whoa, this is all gonna be really poor, but it's not. You know, it's it's a middle-income country. Um, there is 
a lot of places along the coastline, Pacific and on the Atlantic coast, there is little places that see that have amazing food. They're not cheap, so nothing is really cheap in Costa Rica. So that is a problem that cannot compete on that scale with Thailand. But it is a place where you feel like, I, and I've never been there before. I felt like I don't want to leave anymore because there's fast Wi-Fi. It is easy to buy a house. It's very. It's a lot of people speak English. The food is fantastic. It's not much cheaper than San Francisco, but the living quality is so much better. It's safe because you're right at the beach, and you, you know, everyone right. is friendly. You don't get ripped off. It's pretty amazing. What, what, uh, as an example that they deliver to the tourism industry. Yeah, no, I think that's a very good point. Now, you know, you mentioned sustainable travel and sustainable tourism. Um, you know, I think that that we as travelers, uh, or at least a good number of us, are very focused on this. And it's especially important uh, to people under the age of 35, based on our research that we've done, uh, uh, you know, that, that when they travel, they want to make sure they are being good citizens. You know, uh, you mentioned bringing bad habits to a new place. Uh, there are a lot of people who do try to be open so that if they're doing something bad unintentionally, they stop it um, and uh, that they're learning what local customs are. Uh, uh, and, and again, one of the benefits perhaps of the ability to spread out when we travel is that it reduces the peak period impact and maybe spreads out the impact of travel and tourism on a country, on a city, on a park, whatever it is. Um, uh, at the same time, we have to be careful when we are traveling, not, you know, that or, or the people, the countries or the, the organizations that are controlling a, a point of interest or a park or a venue, not to allow too many people in it that, that it, you know, that the destination gets ruined. So it's really careful, and there are fine lines that you're, you know, that have to be walked. There are balances that have to be struck. You don't want necessarily to be a place that is so expensive only the very elite can go. I mean, there are places like Monaco that that revel in it, but there are very few of those places. Um, uh, and it, as, but as you said, there are some places that uh, the airfare may be cheap and lodging may be very inexpensive. But other parts, you know, other things when you're there, uh, uh, food, entertainment, whatever, that may be expensive. Again, this is where travelers have to figure out what can I afford to do and how can I stretch my budget? And we as people have been really resourceful when it comes to this. We will, you know, rent, a, 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 you know, maybe just rent a guest room at someone's house as opposed to staying at a hotel. Or we'll travel with a group of friends to spread out the expenses and rent an Airbnb or something like that. So, you know, there are, there are a growing number of options that help keep traveling more affordable uh, uh, for us um, and, and allow us to spend the money where we want to, where it's going to give us the most value, the most you know, return, if you will, the greatest happiness, whether that's on food, whether that's on language lessons, whether that's on scuba lessons or skiing or shopping or whatever it is that we choose to do. Yeah, um, I'm, you, you run a research um, um, company that basically looks into all the trends that are going in and travel. And I'm curious about what, what your scenarios are, um, how the travel industry will recover from COVID. Um, we all know that um, travel has been down 90%, probably still down somewhere around 60 to 70%. You probably have better domestically because of the travel. How do you think the recovery will look like and then airlines and then the lodging and hotel industry? Sure. So first we have to understand that travel recovery is going to occur in a patchwork. It won't be uniform around the world because vaccinations will be available to people at different rates. Um, people will get vaccinated at different rates. Um, you've got macro factors like economies and things like this that will all be uh, at play here. In the US, well, let's put it this way, in developed countries, I think that, that travel recovers in roughly three years. Uh, I think leisure travel, uh, especially in the US and in Europe, um, uh, will recover within two years or so, maybe a little less, depending again, on the how 
well vaccinations go. Uh, Asia may recover even faster with its leisure travel, but that would be what I'll call domestic or regional travel. So Europeans traveling within Europe, North Americans traveling within North America, Asia, people of Asian countries traveling within the uh, within Asia. Um, you know, long haul travel will take a couple of years or two to three years, maybe four to get back to normal. Um, business travel will take several years to get back to normal. And it probably will be smaller for several years before it hits pre-COVID levels because companies are learning that they don't need to have their employees traveling as much. Um, the airlines that are better able to attract and cater to leisure travelers will enjoy faster recovery. So, you know, that's good for the budget airlines like Ryanair and EasyJet in Europe, AirAsia in Asia, um, here in the US, Frontier and Spirit. But the big airlines, the British Airways, the Cathay Pacifics, the Thai Airways International, the Americans and Uniteds, they'll, they've got a lot of tools that they can use to recover pricing and, and frequent flyer and all sorts of marketing uh, uh, tools that they'll be able to use to recover. I think the lodging industry will see good recovery. It will be led at the four-star and five-star level uh, because the very well-to-do are eager to travel. They're already booking up some of these uh, uh, high-end hotels and resorts. Um, I was on a call recently with a bunch of travel agency owners and, and uh, advisors, and they told me that they're already seeing some uh, popular destinations uh, be sold out for the Christmas, New Year's 2021, 2022. So this coming Christmas, which is nine months away. So, you know, people do want to travel. Um, you know, I think there'll be good airfares out there. I think there'll be good bargains out there. But again, <clears throat> we have more options, uh, uh, especially in lodging where we can use organizations like Airbnb and HomeAway and others to get, uh, uh, you know, rent a house, rent a condo, rent a yurt, whatever it is that makes you happy. Yeah, I, I, for New Year's Eve, um, that was basically a week before and a week after. And obviously, not surprising. Torsten, I'm sorry, I'm losing you. Don't you. Uh, the connection's not very good. Okay. Yeah, I I wasn't sure if it's just me. Um, how about now? Is it any better? Yes, now it's better. Okay. Okay. Um, Thanks. Hang on. Let me just double check. It's going to stay that way. Sometimes it's a little shaky on my side. Something's going on with my my Xfinity Wi-Fi. Um, the last couple of days. Um, I was I was in um, I was in Cancun over New Year's Eve last New Year's Eve, and uh, I was surprised. The room rates were around six hundred dollars a night for the nicer places in town, and uh, the hotels surprisingly, or maybe surprisingly, were basically sold out. And Mexico is one of the few places, like Costa Rica, where it's relatively there were very few COVID entry restrictions um, on an immigration level. And um, I was surprised that the makeup of the guests there had shifted quite a bit. It was less American. It used to be um, a 90% American tourist destination. And it was probably 50, 60% Brazilian. And uh, I flew down on a, on a, on a uh, further down to South America and everyone was Brazilian. So interestingly enough, there's a lot of shifts happening. And you see this with Copa um, Airlines, for instance, who wasn't able to fly for the longest time. But when they restarted, it seemed a lot of the flights came, a lot of the passengers came out of Brazil. Um, Brazil seems to be um, beyond that level of pre-COVID in domestic flights. And so the domestic recovery in Brazil seems to be on, on a high level. Um, probably the fares are lower, but the, the, the pure passenger numbers and the number of flights are up. And I think the same is true for China. Um, who has already exceeded the pre-COVID levels in domestic flights. And uh, there seems to be only, um, and the U.S. is pretty close. I don't know how far we are off, maybe 20, 30%. But I think a lot of discount airlines, they're putting on routes and routes, and they're they they they're already beyond uh, pre-COVID levels. Like, I think Spirit and Allegiant, 
I'm not really sure why, um, because they always, I, I'm never, I've never been a very um, a favorite. I've never had a lot of um, interest in going on Spirit or Frontier because I feel there is a price difference, but it relative, it's relatively small, um, especially if you need to bring it back. And the, the drama and the hassle that you accept with both of these airlines seem to me not worth it. So saving $20, $30, which you definitely can um, for, most, for most routes, it rarely seemed to be worth the drama for me. Um, so I'm kind of surprised that they do so well, but obviously that's what people work with their feet and it seems to be making a big difference. Um, what I realized is though, um, when, when that was really interesting, I went to, to Munich uh, last October and the, the business class was basically full and, and Lufthansa, um, it was still the old plane or the old configuration, um, but the economy was basically empty. So literally there were 10 people in the economy in a 300 person plane. And, you know, the business class is 40 seats about, and that was basically full. And I found this quite stunning, and the flight attendants told me that's been the case for quite some time. And that's kind of surprised me because people would say, oh, leisure is, is, is coming back, obviously less internationally. And it was in October, different time, and business is behind. But it was the opposite of what, what you would expect, at least on that particular route um, to Europe. Um, I find this quite interesting. So there's a lot of things all over the place, I guess, that are hard to forecast from a macro view, right? Right. Well, again, it comes down to a couple of, of things I can share with you. I don't want to get become the research nerd, but um, <clears throat> the, um, <coughs> pardon me, um, what we are seeing is that, one, we've known airline passengers uh, have historically earned uh, well above average incomes. During COVID, what's been very interesting is that uh, uh, passengers who are traveling, in particular long haul, uh, but also domestically, um, uh, are willing to pay an affordable premium to sit in business class, premium economy, you know, some of the, 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 the premium cabins, uh, first class if it's a two cabin domestic flight. Uh, if, if the fare difference is reasonable. Um, and, and what they're doing it for right now is not just the comfort, but the added space, especially on a long haul flight where you have the pods in business class and the seat goes flat. You have a fairly generous amount of room between you and the person sitting in front of you or the person sitting in back of you. And because the seats are wider, there are fewer people across. So you have a little bit more uh, space and privacy as well that way. So I'm not surprised that uh, business class was full. The airlines have also been discounting a lot of their uh, airfares just to get people on the plane and bring cash in the door. Now to the point about the budget airlines such as Frontier and Spirit here or Ryanair and EasyJet in Europe or others uh, in different parts of the world, uh, you know, <clears throat> what they do is they democratize air travel. And uh, uh, they, it, we see segmentation in the airline world, just as we do, let's say, in retail, um, where you have stores that cater to people of more limited incomes and you know, stores that cater to people with more disposable income. Um, you have airlines now that cater to people who don't earn a lot of money or don't want to spend a lot of money. And you know, that's, that's fine. Again, it goes back to democratizing travel making it more affordable and accessible. And frankly, those discount airlines also serve as a lever on the larger airlines and force them to compete, maybe not penny for penny, but to a certain degree in terms of their own discount fares. Yeah, that's absolutely true. You see um, those fare wars going on. I think there's one right now between Miami and LA and a lot of uh, Airlines have either put more seats on it or more airlines have started flying and JetBlue just recently started flying and it's extremely cheap right now. I find that quite stunning. Um, and you would expect only the flights from LA to Miami are full, but no, the other way, there's also people in it. Um, <coughs> beyond that, when, when you look into, and I know you're an expert there, um, when you look into the loyalty programs that uh, the major carriers have built and the, the enormous pool that they've created in the, in the mind of American consumers, um, who I think 
have at some point um, valued their miles more than than dollar spending, right? So it's, it's become an amazing pool um, to an amazing carrot to hold in front of people's um, daily spending habits. What do you think is going to happen to them when when I look at the the loyalty industry? I was um, expecting last March that this would really loyalty promotions. And we've seen this before. There were free nights, say after five stays, or you have to do ten flights and you get a free flight. Um, we get uh, 60,000 miles. Um, US Airways was one of the, those um, promotions uh, quite some time ago when they were still around and they give you um, a lot of milestones and if you would complete them, there would be a, a pretty big payout. And uh, I thought that would happen uh, after March, at the beginning of the pandemic, that these programs would, <laughs> would set milestones and create um, a lever to bring people back in. They seem to have not done much. Um, I know they've used it to as a cash cow and they they they... They use it to mortgage um, um, against additional loans, which I think is a smart idea. But for the consumer, I feel they haven't moved much. They haven't gotten more attractive. Now, what the airlines have done <clears throat> with their loyalty programs is basically they said at the beginning of the pandemic, we're putting everything on hold. We're going to extend your elite status, if you have it, at the same level through 2022 because they realized no one was going to be traveling. They have done some things, Torsten, although it may be targeted. Uh, uh, fly so many times, get a, you know, get earn a bunch of bonus miles, uh, or take so many flights uh, at and spend a certain amount of money <clears throat> and earn uh, bonus miles that count also towards your 2023 elite status, or other things like that. So there have been some promotions out there. Um, some airlines have lowered some of the requalification levels for uh, elite status. So everyone who had, let's just say you had a platinum status or something like that, you were grandfathered in that status from 2020 into 2021. But then what they said is to earn that for 2022, instead of having to do X, you have to do less than X. Um, and, you know, there. I will also add Delta Airlines has not done anything. Delta Airlines is simply at this point seems to be expecting its frequent flyers to jump through the same standard set of hoops for SkyMiles status in 2022 that they would in any other year. And I think that's going to work against Delta because American, United, and Southwest, among others, have been out there with different kinds of promotions and different kinds of requalification. So, I, you know, we have seen in our research that consumers are less loyal to airlines and hotels, frankly, to most travel brands than they were in the beginning. In fact, loyalty to uh, any one travel company now is down more than 60% from when I first became an analyst in 2000 and did the first study uh, where I asked about this when I was back at Forrester. Um, and what we find is that people are really not likely to be blindly loyal to any one company. There are a small number of people who are. Most of us have a subset of brands, travel brands, that we will consider and some that we won't. And so what we do is when we're going, booking a flight, booking a hotel, booking a rental car, booking a cruise, we know the brands we like and we shop them first and then maybe we'll look at some of the partners or others that may be adjacent to them in terms of quality and value. And then there may be brands that, that may be less expensive that we just say the quality is not there, or maybe they're more expensive. We say that would be nice, but I can't afford it or don't want to spend the money. So we're, we're a lot more mercenary ourselves. But one thing that's, that's changed in the past eight years or so, eight, 10 years maybe, is that the travel industry has really shifted from loyalty to transactional and to a revenue-based model and revenue-based evaluation. And they don't really care as much about the person who may be you know, staying with them every week, uh, but only spending $5,000 in the course of the year, uh, as they do the person who may stay 10 times a year, but spends $30,000 because, you know, they are just able to book better quality hotels and book suites and dine and entertain at the property and whatever else. So it's become a lot more focused on the value of the customer. Now, from a marketing standpoint, from a financial standpoint, makes a lot of sense. 
for us as the consumer, we're out there saying, hey, look, I'm giving you my money. And, you know, I don't feel that there's any sense of acknowledgement or appreciation. I think it's a real challenge. And part of that is so many of these brands now are so large that they don't have to care. They won't tell you that. Their PR people won't tell you that. But frankly, you get someone from a, a big airline or a big hotel out um, uh, away from the office, you know, dimly lit bar, having a conversation after work. They will tell you that they just don't care about people who you know aren't in their top one or two levels of, of elite status. Uh, I can imagine, and you know, I, I don't think it's a surprise. I always felt the the airline brands, especially, had been very generous um, over the years, especially combined with the banks, um, and that package um, really allowed a generation of travelers, including me, um, to to see the world. Um, using rewards in a way that I thought would never be possible. So I'm, I'm, I'm very, very, very appreciative and I'm, I'm very um, thankful of, of, of what this, this, I think it was, I don't know if it was once in a lifetime, but it was a very generous act that, that I think happens by, by good intentions, by some luck and by something that was going on in those companies that didn't even know they wanted to do. So I'm, I'm, I'm very grateful. On the other hand, I feel it's, it is very hard to pull off these massive loyalty programs, 30, 40, 50 million members, uh, customize them and deliver a personal, um, a personal um, experience. And I, I always, I think it's a little comical when you check into a hotel and um, someone who, who, who's never seen you before tells you, thank you for your loyalty because you have a status with that hotel chain, right? Or the same is true for airlines. And you're like, well, I'm, I'm, I maybe have the status with all the different airlines, right? Or, or maybe with all the hotels. So it, it's a little comical because I know what they want to do. And it, I, I think they, they do try to create this, this personal experience. I actually think they're doing a pretty decent job. Um, but obviously, they, they, the margins that maybe used to be there are maybe not there anymore. And that obviously cr will create more pressure to not create customers so special. Um, what do you feel is is there a future for these these revenue non-revenue based mileage programs especially say um we earn these miles based on how many dollars we spend i think this is not true for anywhere in the in the airline industry as well as in the hotel industry with very small exceptions but some airlines still give you the ability to get an outsized reward by having a fixed number of miles for say you want to go to asia that's only fifty thousand miles say on, on alaska's program on cafe um, and you can go to South Africa for just 10,000 more in business class. Do you think these things will survive or another? The, the, and I think Delta is just using the opportunity right now. They have devalued quite enormously their own chart when you travel on partners. Do you think these kind of the, the beauty of these award charts um, is gone and they, they will all be revenue based? So you get a one cent discount for every mile you've got. Right. Yeah. So so the the fixed award charts are going to go away if they haven't already. Uh, uh, you know, for one thing, pricing awards dynamically allows the uh, brand, whether it's an airline or a hotel, to give you the product at a lower price, sometimes if demand is softer, uh, or capacity is greater than anticipated. So that's good. But as you said, there are also going to be times where, you know, you go to redeem your, your miles and you look up, you know, a, a flight or a hotel stay and you're, you know, you're just shocked because it's, um, you know, 800,000 miles to fly in business class from, let's say, the U.S. to Australia. You know, well, that's not exactly a great bargain. It's not in terms of the miles, uh, especially if you don't have 800,000 miles. But on the other hand, if you're sitting on several million miles, um, you know, and you don't have to fork out tens of thousands of dollars in cash, you know, it may be just fine. I mean, again, perspective will be really, really important. Uh, but, you know, I think that what the airlines are saying is we would rather tie your earning ability to what you spend uh, to, frankly, recognize and reward those who spend more. To that, I say, you know what, maybe as the brand, you need to really rethink who you want in your loyalty program. 
do you really want everybody that flies your airline or everybody that stays at your hotel to be a member of your loyalty program? And if you do, then what are the benefits that you're going to offer them that are compelling that they wouldn't otherwise get just buying a, a ticket as a general customer or booking a hotel room as a general customer? Now, hotels seized on this a few years ago. They said, join our loyalty program and you get free high-speed Wi-Fi. Okay, you know what? At the time they were charging for Wi-Fi and it could save you $9 or more a day. You know, for a lot of people that was meaningful, but others were saying, you know what? I'm staying on business. I'd expense it anyway. I don't care. So I think that, that you really have to recalibrate. What are the benefits you want to offer? You know, you may come down and come to the conclusion that really, instead of having 100 million people in your loyalty program, you really only want 58,000. Now that's a huge difference and you lose a lot of insight, but maybe that lets you focus on the value you wanna to deliver to those 58,000 people and make sure they're really truly loyal because losing them could have a substantial negative effect on your business. Now, that's a hypothetical example that's not based on anything in reality, but it's just going out there to say, you know, these loyalty programs have, have been corrupted. Um, there is much or more about the credit card. Are you carrying the brand's co-branded co credit card and earning points that way? Um, you know, again, if you are great, if that's what you like, but more of us have switched to a generic bank cards like MX membership awards, city thank you, Chase Sapphire, et cetera, or we're doing cash back because that's definitely more relevant. So an airline card, a hotel co-branded credit card, that doesn't carry the cachet or the value or appeal that it once did. And that all goes back to the devaluation of the core program at the, at the travel brand. Yeah, I think we're going to see this bifurcation. For hotels, they're probably in a better place because they basically, uh, once you book a hotel on say Hilton.com, it's 25% less um, or 15 to 25% less than in commissions than what they would have to pay through an OTA. But the OTAs have lost a lot of traffic uh, like Expedia. Um, they've been consolidating themselves. So I think they still have this idea in mind that they can save 25% by booking on the hotel website. And I think for hotels, that still is really important because it's, you have to run a, a, a certain hotel website. Um, you have to have a, a mobile interface. There needs to be marketing behind it. So I think they, they still have for every member, there is a value proposition that they can kick back, say 10% less, right? And they kind of do this with member rates for a while now. For the airlines, I feel for most of their members, um, as you correctly say, they, there isn't a lot of, mem lot of value left. And I think we, I wouldn't be surprised to see if, we, if Google buys one of those big um, airline loyalty programs because Google can monetize that data, whatever you, you've done before, whatever data shows up very well, right? So they, they, they can, they probably already have that data. Um, they probably pay for it, but they don't run the program yet. But um, one of those, those big data giants, I think I can see them run most of the membership um, very profitably um, and then kick back airline miles to consumers on a certain level, depending on what that is. Um, and then only, as you say, the top 100,000 really stay in, in, in the Delta program. You know, I'm not so sure that they would sell it to Google, but I will say that airlines uh, and hotels are making much better use of their loyalty program data and their other customer data than they were a few years ago. Uh, and airlines are building out software capabilities to extend personalized offers through different channels, including online travel companies like Expedia, as well as traditional uh, retail uh, and, and uh, traditional corporate travel uh, agency organizations. So, you know, the, the, the airlines and the hotels, for that matter, cruise lines, rental car companies, rail companies, and others are all working to use the data that we, they have on us better because what they found is if they send us personalized offers, we will respond. Not only are we more likely to buy, but we actually spend more uh, if we're getting a personalized offer. The core offer may be a discount, but then we end up buying other things uh, as part of whatever the purchase is. Um, and and uh, we have seen through our research pre-COVID 
that personalized offers can lead to as much as a 20% increase in average order uh, uh, value. And uh, BCG, Boston Consulting Group, has done research pre-COVID uh, in retail where they found personalized offers can increase sales there 5% or more. So, you know, it's in the, the seller's best interest to use that data and to make us feel loyal and to make us want to open those emails or respond to those text messages with the offers, um, you know, and we will. But, you know, again, if, if they're not delivering on the basics, if the room isn't clean, if the people aren't pleasant, if the restaurant isn't good, uh, if the neighborhood where a hotel is located isn't safe, you can have the most generous loyalty program in the world, and we're not going to patronize that property anyway, and we may not want to go back to the brand. Unless it's a mattress run. Yes. Um, ah. do, do, do you have data um, how much money on average these, the each loyalty program makes per um, per member? So say United, I don't know if they break it out, but United Mileage Plus is responsible have, for three million not, in profit. Three billion. Yeah, I have profit. not seen anything public uh, uh, on how much profit they earn per customer from an airline. I have seen hotels discuss you know, the average rate or revenue that they get from their loyalty members. And it is considerably more. It's, I believe, at least 15% uh, uh, more than the average guest and possibly far more than that, depending on some of the brands. Marriott, for example, uh, Marriott International uh, uh, has been very good about um, uh, monetizing its Bonvoy loyalty members. Uh, and and uh, in, you know those those members have shown that they are willing to pay more, that they are willing to uh, uh, you know um, they engage more with the brand, they stay at more of the flags, more of the brands within the organization. Um, uh, you know they spend more on property. So you know again, if you've got the right value proposition. Uh, and you know your customer and you've got a product that meets or exceeds their needs, great. The challenge in travel is to get ahead of the customer, which is very, very, very hard to do. Very hard to do. Um, our expectations as consumers increase every year because, <clears throat> pardon me, um, uh, our expectations increase every year because the businesses we work with invest and they do things that are better, whether it's Google, whether it's Uber, whether it's the supermarket, whether it's the bank you use or whatever else, they're doing things to make things easier and more convenient. And what, what we expect is, oh, others are going to keep pace with that. Guess what? They're not. Uh, and so um, as a result, there's this disconnect. There are unaligned expectations. Uh, the, the consumer is up here. The brand is here. And the problem is the brand isn't saying to us, oh, hey, you need to come down to our level uh, uh, and then making us feel good about it. All they do is disappoint us and frustrate us. And then what happens? We say, you know what? I've had enough of it. I'm going to go and see if there's something better available somewhere else. Or we just become mercenary. Yeah. Well, there is this huge disconnect. And I'm, I'm always curious why that is. There's a huge disconnect and say how Europeans travel. They basically have no hotel chain affiliation, for instance, and they try to um, intentionally most Europeans to select non-US hotel chains. So it's very hard to, uh, to get anyone I know from Europe and say into a Hilton. They would go to a Radisson maybe. Um, they might consider certain brands they, 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 they know locally, but they, they whatever, whatever you suggest, they will not go to a US-based um, chain. Um, and then it's kind of the opposite in the US, right? So we, we, we are, when, when I'm traveling and I see a US brand, say in Europe or outside of Europe, I'm, I'm, I, if it's not crazy expensive, I consider booking there. But I wouldn't think much of most European brands because I feel like there isn't a lot of brand standards. And I felt this perception that there is some, something going on with, with European travelers that works very different in their mind. And I don't know if, if, well, if you looked into this, if there's something specific that loyalty programs maybe can can address or that the whole the whole uh, organization can address it seems to be like almost like a completely different world yeah so so some interesting things first um 
you know, what was very interesting is years and years ago, I worked for a branding agency and uh, uh, the parent companies of Holiday Inn, it was then Bass Hotels was one client. Another client was Visa International. And research uh, uh, we did for those organizations, and this is now literally going back more than 20 years, uh, showed at the time that uh, in the case of Holiday Inn, Holiday Inn was really viewed as a global brand uh, because um, uh, it, it, you know, they, they, they just had very good training and there was a lot of cultural sensitivity. Granted, it was formulaic. It's Holiday Inn. You know, there's a certain look to it. But uh, the things that people liked about Holiday Inn was, uh, interestingly, the reservation system. It was felt to be more accurate and more reliable. Um, uh, and the cleaning standards of the rooms and comfort of the beds. Those were some of the things that stood out. So Holiday Inn was very successful in making itself viewed as a brand of the world, a global citizen. Now, the views of Holiday Inn varied from country to country. Americans uh, uh, were less enamored with Holiday Inn, for example, than people in certain parts of Europe or Asia. And in Asia, Holiday Inn was actually viewed as true luxury, uh, as almost aspirational in certain markets. With Visa and Amex at the time, Amex was seen as a business credit card carried by American uh, 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 executives or executives who work for US-based companies. Visa was much more, uh, it was considered to be much more of a global brand. And in part, Visa didn't have the word American in its brand name. So let's bring it up to today. You know, you mentioned that Europeans don't wanna stay at uh, branded hotels, US branded hotels first. Europe, until the past 30 years, didn't have a lot of branded hotels for the most part. It was a region where independent hotels dominated, often hotels owned by a family for generations. Um, we, they didn't have, aside from maybe big cities such as London and Paris and Frankfurt, they didn't have the big multi-hundred, let alone thousand-plus room hotels uh, that you would see in the US or certain other parts of the world. And so there are cultural tastes and cultural preferences. Um, what's been very interesting is that in the past 20 years, the US brands have been very successful in uh, exporting brands such as Doubletree by Hilton and Weston and Conrad and others into Europe and elsewhere. Uh, and uh, uh, those brands are very well received. The developers like it because they, you know, it's, it's a known product, um, they can make more money, um, and uh, they're attracting people who've run independent hotels to convert to some of these brands. Accor has gone on an acquisition spree. It owns Fairmont, it bought Raffles, um, you know, and it's grown its own suite of brands in Europe. Uh, uh, you know, so, so, it's just very interesting to see that that now Europeans are more comfortable staying at brands, but the brand has to be relevant. It all goes back Torsten to, you know, what's in it for me as the guest? Uh, are my expectations going to be met and ideally exceeded? And so, you know, brands bring a certain sense of familiarity, although they also force a little trade off in terms of conformity. Well, well, talking about um, a, a brand that has developed very nicely, um, I'm always curious about Qatar Airways. They've been able to to build their brand, obviously driven by a lot of money, but that's that's kind of a given in the region. And um, they've been able to build a brand and also put in the innovation, put in the work. Um, they've innovated on their business class a lot. They they played with first class. It didn't really work out. Uh, they kind of uh, have taken that off the menu a little bit and. They've really re reintroduced an economy class cabin that we used to know, or that that comes with good good food, something that you know we we probably still remember from twenty five years ago, and uh, they they are able they have they have put the money into branding and also uh, created an airport and hub that actually is worthwhile connecting at. And what's even more surprising during the pandemic, they seem to have 
of being able to keep up their network. I don't know if their planes are completely empty. That might be the case. But they rarely cancel the flight completely. They maybe only fly three times a week. Um, well, most destinations are still intact, and they always had a long-haul network. So they never had much of a, of a short-haul network. Saudi Arabia for a while, that's now slowly coming back uh, as well. But when we contrast this to Emirates, which always was known for pretty big planes, but also pretty empty planes, and that was pre-pandemic, they were mostly never really full. And they had like three flights from LA every day and two from San Francisco, uh, massive capacity. And it seemed like they cut their network by 90%. Um, and Qatar is kind of, and so that's true also for Etihad. So what's going on with Qatar? Is it just uh, destined of losing a lot of money? Um, do they think this is a real opportunity? Are they getting a little closer to making any money? What's your insight into Qatar? Well, uh, Qatar Airways is state owned. And the government of Qatar has said they're willing to keep the airline going. Now, a lot of the routes that they've been operating have been less about people and more about cargo, moving belly cargo, uh, either uh, uh, exporting goods uh, or importing goods into Doha or using Doha, to your point, as a transit hub for some of that cargo between the, let's say, Europe and the Americas at one end and India uh, or, or uh, Southeast Asia at the other. And Doha is a very, very convenient airport, a very geographically well-placed uh, airport. So it makes a lot of sense. But Qatar has definitely invested in the passenger product and the passenger experience. Their business class Q suites uh, have earned the praise of some of the most finicky flyers I know. Um, uh, the reason that they had first class only on the A380 uh, is that, frankly, they felt they didn't need it on any other flight. Uh, for one thing, very few people will buy first class. But also, when your business class is so good, what are you going to do? You know, what do you do to make first class that much better? Uh, and you contrast that, say, with Air France, which has a nice, you know, solidly good business class product or Lufthansa, but their first class is tangibly better. Uh, although they only have first class on a handful of their long haul jets. So Qatar Airways has really focused on uh, uh, the passenger experience because they feel it, they need to. They're not as large as Emirates. Their network isn't as extensive. To your point, maybe they can only run one flight a day in and out of a city, whereas Emirates may run two or more. Um, and they know that they have to really compete. And part of that competition will be based on schedule and price. But part of it is the so-called soft product, the pleasantness of the uh, flight attendant, the comfort of the comfort of the seat, food, in-flight entertainment, Wi-Fi, uh, all of that. Um, and, and it will work. So, you know, it seems to be working for Qatar Airways right now. Um, uh, and I think the other thing that they are doing is they realize if they fly through the pandemic, if they open new routes, for example, they've opened new routes from Doha to both San Francisco International and Seattle Tacoma. If they're there now, by the time people start traveling again, they'll be more of a known factor. And it will help them compete with other airlines, whether they're European carriers, Asian carriers, or other carriers from the Middle East, uh, and, and, you know, maybe they won't have to discount as much. Yeah, one thing that I noticed when I talk to people who start an airline or helped start an airline, it's relatively easy to start an airline. Uh, Warren Buffett has this famous saying. Um, yeah. And it's, it's relatively easy to, to make it a product that, that people find of interest. Um, even marketing is easy because you just slash the fares like Iceland Air. Uh, not Iceland Air, uh, Wow Air. Uh, Excuse me, but Iceland Air was, was was going in a similar route for a while, similar destination for a while. But it's really difficult to make an airline profitable and sustainably profitable, not just for a year. And we put a lot of um, a lot of we, we defer a lot of um, um, expenses in that particular year, but make it sustainable, sustainably profitable. That's a feat that for the longest time was impossible, and then the U.S. airlines became so profitable. Um, amazingly profitable, like Alaska Airlines. Um, do you think this, and now, you know, a lot of airlines have gone down and they're out of business or they, they will go down. I mean, if, if the travel 
recovery um, will be another 12 months out. I think it's going to be um, even more airlines that, that stop flying um, entirely. Do you feel um, we're going to see a renaissance of really profitable airlines because there is simply so many, there's a much smaller amount of, of airlines around? Um, and to an extent, I always felt some airlines maybe are not even in the business of making money. So you, because there's so much more money to be made from people bringing they bring into the country and in cases of Qatar to raise the national image, which is really strange. Uh, do you feel we see the super profitable airlines again or there will be a sustained five, 10 years where, where nobody makes any money? No, I think, look, you know, you, you do have some airlines like Qatar and Emirates that are, and Etihad, that are viewed as strategic assets uh, uh, and uh, uh, their contribution is me measured more than in their own individual profit and loss. It's what do they do to help with travel and tourism, to help with development, to help with the country's positions on the world stage, uh, 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 you know, uh, trade and more. Um, but, uh, you know, for, for airlines that are not state owned uh, or whose governments are not as generous uh, uh, as uh, uh, the UAE and, and Qatari governments may be to their airlines. The airlines do have to earn a profit, or at least not lose a lot of money. I do think that within a couple of years, uh, uh, and I do think it's no more than two years, at this point, we will start to see airlines return to profitability. And assuming that the global economy doesn't go haywire, that oil and thus jet fuel doesn't go haywire, uh, that we don't have any other crises. I think we will see the airline industry, you know, continue to be profitable starting in maybe it's 2022, certainly no later than 2023 and continue forward. What we don't know is how profitable will it be? What will demand look like? Will consumers be willing to spend money on all the optional things? Will planes be as full as they once were? Will airfares be as as uh, high as they once were. So there are a lot of unknowns, Torsten, at this point. Uh, I have worked on a startup airline, and I will tell you, the first year is really, really hard. But, you know, you're coming off of a base of zero, so everything looks good. Um, uh, it's, it, but, it, you know, when you get into year two, year three, year four, that's when it becomes much more difficult. The comparisons become more difficult. You're more of an established business at that point. Um, and you don't have the luxuries and the flexibility and agility sometimes that you did when you were uh, starting up. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful uh, and, and conversations I've had with the executives looking at their balance sheets and financial data and looking at data from organizations like IATA, as well as my own research. I, I think 2022 is, is the year we start to see airlines return to profitability. Um, and and uh, uh, though it may be modest, but it climbs from there. Well, on that positive note, I, I want to thank you for coming on the podcast. Um, thanks for sharing your knowledge. Uh, thanks for doing this, Henry. Thanks, Torsten. I enjoyed it, and I appreciate being invited. Absolutely. I hope we get to do this again. I would like that. Henry, have a good one. Talk soon. Okay, take care. Stay well. Bye. Bye-bye.